Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Mark chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 35. Last week we went over faithful ministry in a fallen world, and we saw the commitment of Christ, the call of the apostles, and then the call for us to be committed to Christ. That's what we looked at last week, and today we're going to see a setting of Jesus, a crowd, and many critics. The title of the message today is Clarity in the Midst of Chaos, and we're going to see some chaotic scenes through this, throughout our time here. C.S. Lewis, a great uh, author and theologian, once said this, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And what he meant by that is Jesus can't just be some good moral guy or a wonderful teacher because he was making some radical claims, proclaiming the power of God was upon him, proclaiming to be God, proclaiming to be the Messiah. And so you have to put him in one of those three categories. He's either a liar, he's saying he is this and he is not, or he's out of his mind, he's a lunatic, he's lost, he thinks he's God, or he actually is the Lord and Messiah. I wonder when C.S. Lewis was putting that together, did he think of this particular passage? Because in this passage, we see Jesus as Lord. We see those who think he is a liar, denying the power of God and claiming it's the power of Satan, and we see even his family saying, he's lost his mind. He's a lunatic. He's gone a little bit too far. So having said all of those things, let's look at our text today, and we're going to see three different kind of sceneries. Uh, The first one's going to be Jesus and his family, then it's going to go to the scene of the critics, of the scribes, and then it's going to come back to the family. And so we're going to start in verse 20. We went over briefly this last week, but we're going to pick up there and read through the end of the chapter. It says, Jesus, he entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. And when his family heard this, they were not there with him, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he, that is Jesus, summons them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins, whatever blasphemies they uttered. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he is of an unclean spirit. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your your mother and your brothers and your sisters are all outside asking for you. 
And he replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and my mother. A lot of text to go over. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word, which is at times very raw, and yet it is rich and relevant for our lives today. Father, even as I study and prepare this message, I feel the weight of this, for Jesus says some hard things that can be a gut punch. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would speak, that your spirit, just as the spirit that moved upon and through Jesus that your spirit would work amongst us today. And not just in this moment, but as we go out of here, may your spirit continue to work within us that we would be changed and conformed to be more and more like Jesus. So Lord, we commit this time to you and ask for your help during this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever thought you knew someone, but it turns out that you didn't really know them? Maybe you thought they were good, and it turns out they were not good. Or maybe you thought, ah, that person's bad, really bad, and maybe it turns out they're, they're actually really good. The fact of the matter is, we can be very judgmental. We can think we know someone, but we can be misinformed, misguided, come to the wrong conclusions, and we think this about somebody. Lots of people are doing this in this story. Lots of people are coming to their own misguided, misinformed conclusions. Some out of ignorance and some just out of a hardness of heart. And that's what we're going to see here. And the same is true of us. And if we're not careful, that can be our mindset towards Jesus or towards others. And so in this setting, lots of people are going to say lots of things. And Jesus is going to have some things to say about that. He's going to want to set some people straight, correct or reorient their thinking of uh, their false or misaligned. He just wants to, to, to realign them. He wants to correct them. He wants to get them on the path. And so in the midst of all this, he's going to reveal his true identity. He's going to reveal his character, and he's going to reveal his true power source that is from God, the Holy Spirit of God that is resting upon him and working. And you ought not press against that. The big idea is this. The gospel of Jesus calls us into a forgiven and familiar relationship with him. And so as Jesus goes throughout life, he's wanting to call people to this forgiveness and into this familial relationship. His family didn't get this. The religious scribes, the religious elites didn't get this, and he wants them to get it. You see, the gospel doesn't call us to fix Jesus and to fit Jesus into our life. God actually, through the gospel of Christ, looks to fix us and to conform us to be more and more like Christ. And so that, that's what he's wanting to, to do. And so we see these scenes of verses 20 and 21 and 31 through 35. That's the family. And then right in the middle there, we see this uh, scribes having their opinions, having their thoughts. So with all of that in mind, in all of these settings, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see insiders, that is family and religious elites um, that actually think 
So that they, they think they're insiders in reality, in Christ's mind, you guys are actually outsiders. And then those outsiders that aren't family or aren't the religious elites, Jesus is actually going to point out to them, you're actually insiders. And it's this beautiful picture, but let's look at verses 20 and 21, and what we're going to look at here in this scene is just this confusion, this, this state of confusion. After this mountaintop experience, they come back down, they enter into a house in Capernaum, probably Peter's house, Word is spreading from all around. Crowds are gathered from all around. There's followers following him. You know who's not following him, though? His family. And so they get, weird, they get word back in Nazareth. That they get word back that, uh, wait, Jesus is thinking he's the Messiah? He's going to upset some people. He, there's so many people around, he's not eating. He, he, he can't sleep. He just needs rest. We need to go rescue him. Sounds like he's out of his mind. Sounds like he's gone a little bit too far. Sounds like loony. I mean, we knew our older brother, I mean, growing up, yeah, he was a goody two-shoe, but the Messiah, really? They're not followers of him. They're not following him. They're just hearing all of this hearsay about all of these things. Maybe that some of the scribes, before they come to Jesus, they go to this house and say, hey, hey, Mary, and hey, the rest of you guys, Jesus has lost his mind. He thinks he's God. And the brothers, oh, we'll, we'll go straighten him out. That's the scene. That, that, that's the scene of them leaving to, to, to go. He is out of his mind. You see, here's what they're confused about. They think Jesus is confused, and they are actually confused about who he is. They think they need to seize him, to, to rescue him. They do not understand who Jesus is and why he came. You see, Jesus came to be the great rescuer, not to be rescued. They haven't switched around. They, they don't see this. They don't understand. They're, they're a little bit confused as to what's going on uh, with Jesus right now. And they're like, yeah, if we just get a little bit of time, I think we can straighten them out. I think we can work through this. But you know what's going to happen in due time? They're going to see. And this ought to bring you and me hope for our friends and family that maybe haven't come to know Christ, who might be a little bit confused on things. Because here's what happens. Jesus just loves them. He just loves them. He just loves them. And after the resurrection, and, and we fast forward to Acts chapter 1, here's what we see. Mary knew who Jesus was, so she's committed to Jesus. But his brothers, like, they weren't there. They didn't know all the, the Christmas story and the birth and all of these things. Maybe Mary told them, but um, that, that they're still not a believer. But here's what we see in Acts chapter 1. Their confusion gets clarified. They come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, the, 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 the Messiah who is uh, resurrected and now has ascended, and they go on to do great things for God. Uh, James is going to be one of the pastors in Jerusalem. Jude is going to be used, and, and many others. And so that'll be hopeful for you and me, where your family might be confused right now. It's okay. Take hope. Just love them. Just, just point them to Christ. Be the example of Christ, even in the midst of confusion. And so these individuals, they might have the best of intentions in mind, but they're misinformed. They're ignorant. They haven't been following Jesus. They haven't been seeing all the things that everyone else has been seeing. And so they've come to these conclusions just by hearsay, this, this, and this. But here's what we come to understand. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're associated with Christ, you're to be the greatest advocate for Christ, and here they are actually adversaries. Rather than pursuing and propelling the mission of Jesus, they're actually looking to hinder him. Well, we're going to stop him. We're, we're, we're going we're to put a halt to this. No, 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 no. They're, they are confused as to who Jesus is and why he came. So currently, his family and friends, that they're all looking to help him, but they're actually opposing him. 
You know what's interesting? As they're hearing this, they might be like, man, Jesus and his followers, they just sound like a bunch of fanatics. You know, in, in the day and age in which we live, there can be football fans, right? Like, they, it seems like they eat, breathe, and sleep football. Like, they go to work, they talk about football, sunrise, the sunset, they, they know all of the stats. Maybe even on Sunday, they go to the games, and they get really excited, and they're screaming, and they're hooping, and hollering, and if their team loses, they're sad and so emotional, and then if they win, they're just ecstatic. I mean, they might even go, like, go so far as to put some war paint on, and they might even peel off their shirt, and, and whoa, they might do something like that. I don't know if you've ever seen someone do that, but what, what do we say? Man, they're just, they're just fans. They're just, they're just really passionate fans. But you know what happens in the world of Christianity? You start going to church faithfully, and your family and friends, they might support you. Oh, that's good for you. But like, then you're like going like every Sunday. And then you like maybe start to get involved in like a community group. And then occasionally we might have, there might be some like teaching on a Saturday, and it's like three hours. And there's all of these things. And then you want your, your, your friends or family to maybe come with you to church sometime. And then maybe sometime you just start talking to them about the things of the Lord and what God's doing in your life and all these great things. And they might be like, whoa, dude, you have gone too far. They don't call you a fan. They, they call you a fanatic, some religious freak for wanting to just follow Jesus and that's what's going on with Jesus and his followers. They're getting these labels. Many people are confused, and so Christ is just committed to his call. But here's what we're going to see. We're going to see this transition from this friends and family who unknowingly are looking to rescue Jesus. There's not bad intentions there. They're just really ignorant. They haven't come to know the truth of who Jesus is. So who can fault them? Right, like we just want to—we want to rescue him from embarrassment and shame, and 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 some of the political fallout, and he could get himself in trouble with the authorities if he keeps this best of intentions here. So it's not like they're—they're they're actively against. There's just so much they don't know. But here's what we do see as we look at verse 30, or uh, verse 22 through 28. We're going to see a group that has seen that does know they've seen firsthand they've been following around jesus here to here to here questioning him questioning him questioning him they have seen these things they aren't confused as to hearsay here and there they, they have been eyewitnesses but rather than believing and forsaking their way they see jesus as a threat to their way and they come to their own conclusions and they're going to confront Jesus, or Jesus might be confronting them, whatever way you want to consider it. But here in verses 22 through 28, we see this confrontation. Jesus was drawing this large crowd, but it wasn't just of followers. It was those that want to stop him and his followers. But they didn't come with small concerns. They come with a disturbing conclusion. Rather than praising God and exalting God and saying, praise be to God for all of his mighty works that he is doing, they said, this isn't the work of God. This isn't the work of God's spirit in and through Jesus. This is actually the work of Satan. You know, the scribes, they are the religious authority, and here's what they're doing. They're rejecting the authority of Jesus. But, but here is why they're seeking to do that. Uh, they are scared. Why are they scared? 
Jesus threatens their political influence, their power, their position, their prestige. Jesus affects their entire way of life. Because as Jesus says, out with the old and in with the new, all the Old Testament ways of these Jewish things, these rituals, if these, these are being passed away, they serve their purpose, and all things are made new in me, what does that mean? That means they're unemployed. It means you're messing with me and my life. And when uh, the gospel confronts somebody with messing with me and my life, they, they don't like that. I like me and my life and don't mess with me and don't interrupt that and definitely don't threaten that. And so these guys feel threatened. And so what are they going to do? They're going to use this smear tactic, this, this slandering of Jesus and his followers to try to discriminate and disband this and just... It's all just a misunderstanding. He's not of God, he's of Satan. And we see this starting to unfold here. And this is going to be coming with confrontation. It says there in verse 22 that he he was possessed by Beelzebub. That he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. That's a pretty weighted statement. Beelzebub, it's kind of a trickier, hard word to translate. And so as I read and studied, there's a couple different thoughts or uh, definitions that can go with it. There's, there's this one, I mean, none of them are terms of endearment. None of them are, are positive. But one, one carries this thought of being Lord of the dunghill, Lord of the flies. Maybe you've read that book. It comes from this thought, this name right here. That is Lord of, over something that is rotten or repulsive. They're basically saying Jesus is Lord over all that is rotten and repulsive. That's what, I mean, this is, these are fighting words. You don't say this to someone. And they're giving him that title or, or at least whispering it here or there. But there's also this term that, is, that comes from this Greek in the Old Testament refers to this exalted prince or ruler. That is Baal of Prince, also known as this. Baal's dynasty. Well, if you're familiar with Baal of Old Testament, Baal is a false god who is the exact opposition of the true God, the true and living God, Yahweh. So here's what we're saying. He is of this Baal dynasty, not of the true and living God of Yahweh dynasty. Exact opposite kingdoms, exact opposite dynasties. And so they're putting him in this camp as if they're in this camp. That's what's going on right here. It's extremely harsh, and it must be addressed. And so Jesus seeks to set them straight. And how's Jesus going to do that? He's going to do it with logic. I mean, clearly the concept of Beelzebul and and Baal is going to be carried out, this concept of dynasty and kingdom and home, because in just a moment he's going to talk about this in a little parable to help illustrate. Um, That actually can't be true of me. It's actually stupid and foolish of you to even mention such a thing. And so here's what happens. Just as Jesus summoned the apostles up on the mountain, you know, he's crowded with his followers. He hears about the whispering here and there. It says that he summons, he, he summons those scribes, bring those guys to me. We're going to have a little talk. We're going to have a little confrontation. We're going to have a little bit of clearing of the air. You say this, let's talk about this. And so Jesus summons them. And you can almost imagine, can't you? Like when, when the, the, the scribes then, then somewhat gather around. Like the, the seriousness, like, whoa, things just got really quiet in here. You could probably hear a pin drop as 
Maybe Jesus stands up to look at these dirty, filthy, rotten, hypocritical, hard-hearted scribes and says, hmm, I heard what you said about the whole Beelzebub thing. And so what do good teachers do? Good teachers ask good questions. And he's going to ask some, some, some questions in the form of parables and illustrations to help them and help everyone else maybe answer some of the things that have been being said about him. So he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? That doesn't even make sense. That's just ridiculous. If the work of Jesus is opposed to Satan, how then can Jesus be empowered by Satan? So Satan is trying to do this, and Jesus is doing the exact opposite. Well, like, that doesn't even make sense. It's just dumb. And in verse 25, he says, If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And then he goes on and talks about the home as well. Everyone gets this. Everyone in the crowd gets this. If there is a marriage within a home and it doesn't work out, they're, they're, they're at odds, that family is divided and can end in divorce, and it's devastating. If there is a business partners that, that cannot agree, over the course of time, that business breaks apart and it doesn't work. And if we look at the course of all of history, all dynasties, all kingdoms that have risen and fallen have usually risen and fallen from within. Is Satan's mission ultimately to weaken and divide his kingdom so it's destroyed? Like, what kind, who does that? No one says, I want to build this kingdom just to destroy it. It doesn't make sense. It's stupid. So you're saying I'm driving out demons and doing all the Satan work? Why would I do that if I'm for Satan, if I'm in that camp? It's just, it's just ridiculous. And so, verse 27 says this. He goes on with this other illustration, this other thought. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's putting his cards on the table. He's letting the game plan of God be known. Satan is the strong man. This broken world, this broken kingdom has been kind of his domain. And he's been running rampant here and there. But Jesus comes to bring in a new kingdom and take over this rotten kingdom. And so what does he do? He binds Satan. And in his power, he silences the evil spirits and commands them out. I'm the stronger of strong men here. Jesus is declaring, I will bind you, Satan. You have no control. When I say shut your mouth, you will shut your mouth. Like That's what's going on here. They didn't have this power. The scribes didn't have this power. There's a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of envy, what's going on here. And Jesus is putting them on notice. My kingdom is breaking through, and I am bringing a new kingdom, and I am binding the strong man, and I am setting people free from the captive of sin. I'm setting people free from the bondage of Satan and his power and his stronghold. His stronghold is no match for me, and he is breaking people free from the bondage of this oppressor. He is liberating people through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is doing this. Not Satan. It's just, it's just so dumb to, 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 to even mention. I mean, Jesus is healing diseased people. He goes on to raise from 
uh, death dead people and bring them to life. He delivers demons out of people. This is the divine deliverance. Historians will, will, I mean, you can look through historical accounts of this time frame of Jesus because of the thousands and all the things that he's doing. The book of John says that we can't even number all the things that Jesus did. But within this time period, like, disease is being, like, done away with. People that are dying here, here, and here, like, Jesus is, is going here and healing this and healing this and healing this. He's doing all these amazing things. You know what? There's nothing in Scripture that ever characterizes Satan as doing something good. He doesn't do these wonderful miracles because it goes against his very nature. Satan lies, destroys, and deceives. That's what Satan does. Jesus isn't doing any of that. And so what he's saying is, scribes, you're off your rocker. You're actually the ones that have lost your mind. And he has some harsh things to say for them. But you know what? I mean, Jesus, he eventually will be bound, he will be beaten, and he will bow his head as he dies on a tree. And they think, ha-ha, we've won. And yet the Holy Spirit of God comes forth and brings forth Jesus three days later, and the bonds are fully broken. But you know what? It's not just some New Testament thing. Isaiah, just look at this and listen to this. Isaiah chapter 49. Because this is kind of playing into what Jesus is illustrating in this parable. It says, can the prey be taken from a mighty man or captives or a tyrant be delivered? For this is what the Lord says. Even the captives of a mighty man will be taken and the prey of the tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they will be drunk with their own blood as the sweet wine then all of humanity will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. You see, the Messiah is fulfilling his mission and messianic prophecy of old. Once again, the things that Jesus is saying was actually spoken of, and he's doing this. He's binding, he's delivering, that's what Jesus does. This is really good stuff. Jesus goes and just plunders the house. I'm going to bind you up, and I'm going to silence him. I'm going to free him. I'm going to do all this stuff. Like, that's what I do through the power of God. You can't fight it. You can't resist it. This is what I'm going to do. You see, the, the mission of God is not fulfilled in just compromise or coexisting. When Jesus broke through, he came through to invade and to conquer. And that's what he's doing even in these moments he is invading this world and turning the world upside down, and those religious elites aren't sure what to do with this. So all they're going to do is just try to cast stones. And Jesus is going to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words, they do not hurt me. But they'll hurt you. And he's going to go on to talk about that. In verse 28, he wants everyone to lean into this truth. You see, he has a serious statement, and he wants all to hear loud and clear. There's almost like this dramatic pause that takes place where it says there in, in the scripture, truly I tell you, this is the proclamation of, I'm going to tell you something really important. Now hear this. It's actually that phrase is where we get the term amen. So if there's a preaching, a, something you agree with, you might say amen, which is to say, that's true, or I agree. 
So what Jesus is going to do, how I may say something, you might say, amen, let's just practice. I say something, you say. Amen. Now let's try that again. I say something really good, and you say. Amen. Okay, okay, very, very good. Jesus, rather than waiting to say something and the amens, he's going to start with amen. I'm going to tell you something really true. You need to listen up. You need to hear this. And he's going to start with some good news, where we're like, amen. And then he's going to switch to some bad news. So he... he he says this, truly I tell you, verse 28, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies. There is a really small word there, but a really impactful word. And it's that little word, A-L-L, all sins and whatever blasphemies. Blasphemies, you know, those things that, that are slanderous or defame God. All of those things are forgiven, can be forgiven. That is really good news. That's where you can be able to say, amen. That, that's what he was aiming, aiming. I'm going to tell you something really good, but then we're going to switch to something really bad. And so when we think of all sins, some people think of this unforgivable or unpardonable sin. Is it, is it adultery? Is it murder? Is it, have I done this unpardonable sin, this unforgivable sin? Well, he says here that any and all sins are forgiven, but then there's going to be a comma and he's going to finish this thought. So he goes from the good news to this bad news. And how do we know that murder and adultery and you fill in the blank are all forgivable? Well, you look at Moses. You look at David. You look at Simon the Zealot. You look at the Apostle Paul. All of these guys had some pretty big skeletons within their closet. And yet God's grace abounds and his mercies are new every morning. And so we can rejoice in this. You can rejoice in this. And so as you meet with someone who says, God can't forgive me, point them to this. God can and does and longs to forgive. But now we're going to see this condemnation. So we, 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 we've seen Jesus confront them, but now he's going to give this not so good news. Verse 29 through 30 um, says in verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This eternal sin comes with eternal consequences. Well, what is this? Well, John the Baptist said that Jesus is going to come as a more powerful one who's going to baptize and bring in the Holy Spirit of God. You can either accept that or reject that. And here's what we see. People knowing, intentionally knowing, seeing all these things that Jesus, they didn't deny the miracles of Jesus. What they're denying is the power of that Jesus had being from God. Rather, they're wanting to equate it to something that is evil. They're wanting to equate it to uh, Satan. You cannot be forgiven of saying, I deny God and I deny his power, and I say it's the power of Satan. I, 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 I can't do anything with that. And that's what he's talking about here. And so this eternal sin will not be forgiven. It's the sin of denying the power of God's spirit these individuals here knowingly, intentionally, repeatedly, and recklessly reject Jesus and the Spirit of God that is working through Jesus. That's what's going on. That's unforgivable. Hebrews 2. Um, you're going to see it here up on the screen, I think. How will we escape if we neglect such great of salvation? This salvation has its beginning when it was spoken by the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. It goes on to say this in Hebrews. I think it's Hebrews chapter 10. Maybe. 
Maybe not. Well, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, and verse 29 also talks about this. How can we hear these things and then reject them? There is this great weight that goes along with this. In fact, Isaiah 5, 20 says this. This is the prophet once again saying, Woe, be warned to those who would call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's exactly what's going on here. They're seeing the goodness of God. They're seeing the power of God. They're seeing Jesus bring forth life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're taking that which is good and calling it evil. They're taking that which is good and calling it bad. They're taking that which is sweet and saying that it's bitter. Jesus says, woe to them. You're on dangerous ground. Woe to, to Jesus calls you to do this and you reject it and fight against it and call that which is good bad. And so individuals who ridicule the Spirit of God, he's kind of giving this warning. You will not be redeemed. You will not be forgiven of this. In fact, you'll be condemned for this. But here's the really good news. When we flip back to the previous verse, anyone of any sin, you fill in the blank, can be forgiven, can be restored, can be reborn, can be redeemed. That's the great work of Jesus done through the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit quickens us, the Spirit makes us alive. That's what happens, but you deny that? You are not quickened, you are not made alive. Here's some really good news. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, oh, this should still be so liberating, and after I get right here, this is where you say amen. Okay, just listen to this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Thank you, two guys in the front row. That's awesome. <laughs> and Siri. Keep in mind, okay, Mark is wanting us to see not only the scribes, but the family. And so we're going to shift back to this family scene real quickly. So we, we should be comforted by verse 28, but also 31 through 35 should be of comfort to us as well. And so as we get to these closing verses, we see the family arrives on the scene. So they hear about what's going on, the thing with the scribes happens, and now we see that they're actually on the scene, and that they, they get to the, the, the house there, and they're like, hey, uh, we're here. I don't know who, if you know who we are. Uh, mom, brothers, family, we'd like to see Jesus. Word gets back to Jesus in this crowded house. You know, like, this is this family reunion. Surely they'll just open up and just, you know, escort them in, or Jesus will pause everything, time out. I gotta go out and see them. That's what we think or would anticipate what's going to happen. And yet, consider the response of Jesus. Listen to this. Verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? Now listen, this isn't a question. Uh, he isn't confused. He didn't forget who his family was. He hasn't really lost his mind. But he's wanting his disciples to see the big picture perspective of his love and commitment to this faith family. He's wanting to, to understand that when you come to know Christ and you come to this union in Christ, you're brought into this family of Christ. And you are made mothers and brothers and sisters. He wants all of those people to know that. Well, why would he say such a thing? Why would he say that? Why wouldn't he just say, oh, that's great, just bring him in? Why would he say this? Let's keep in mind the context. There's the potential followers 
And if they're going to get serious about following Jesus, most of these are Jews, and they start to follow Jesus, you know what's going to happen to their, the rest of their family? They're probably going to disown them. They're going to have nothing to do with them. And so these people that might have a family right now, if they're following the Jewish ways, they start to follow the ways of Jesus, this might cause some sort of family division. So what is Jesus doing? He's wanting these followers to understand, hey, you're a follower of me, you're, you're part of this family. We got something really good here. And he wants them to understand, to embrace this. And so Jesus is looking at those outsiders and saying, hey, listen, you're, you're now made an insider. You're now made a part of this family. You're in. And so Jesus says, come, come and enjoy. You know, when we think of converted Muslims, people that were practicing Muslims that come to Christianity, this is really helpful for them. You know why? Because when they leave the Muslim faith, their family is cut off. Which is, a, which is a really important reason that we as a church family would seek to embrace others as a real spiritual family. That we would love them, embrace them. Because here, you know, oftentimes we might have a really good family thing and that's great and praise the Lord and that is really good. But that's not the case for some or many people that do come to faith. They're, they're counting the cost and maybe, maybe they struggle to even come to Christ because of what they're leaving but they don't yet realize what they're gaining in this family of God. And so if you have this tight-knit family that supports you, that's awesome, that's amazing. But Christ here wants to emphasize this family aspect within the local community of believers, which is why he would establish what we call the local church. He sees this as a really important thing. And so this might make some of us feel uncomfortable at times because we love our family. And if I start to love the church, am I being disloyal to my family? We can kind of feel tied or torn. Jesus doesn't want that. He actually says, I want you to love your family well, and I actually want you to love your church family well. If you have two kids, and you're like, oh, we're pregnant with a third one, are you like, oh, man, I'd, I'm all out of love. I can't possibly love a third one. No, no, no. He, he, what Jesus is wanting them to see is like, listen, our love should be growing, strengthening, and it just continues to build as the church grows as well. And he wants them to, to understand this. So let me ask you rhetorical questions. Don't answer out loud. How are we doing in this category? We talk about, we talk about our family. We talk to our family. We text our family. We enjoy meals with our family. We hang out at events with our family. We grow together as a family in seasons of success and suffering and sorrow. We do all these things as a family. We financially support our family. We serve to help meet the needs of our family. Those, these are all normal, natural things. I just want to ask you, honestly, don't answer. How are you doing that with your church family? You say, heck, you are stepping on my toes. I am not aiming for your toes. I'm actually aiming for your heart. God is calling you to this, this tight-knit family love for your family, but for the faith family as well. Because look at verse 34. Just slowly take this in. Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here, gathered amongst us, are my mother and my brothers, and whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and my mother. I imagine Jesus pausing and looking around it, and them, maybe even some with tears in their eyes, saying, oh, this is so good. So glad I got this. So, so needed. I need this how reassuring this was for those followers and maybe how unassuring for those religious scribes and religious family or uh, relational family. 
because they're realizing we're on the outside looking in, not on the inside looking out. Normally in these settings in our house, we have our family gathered close by and the, the crowd is outside and here it is the exact opposite. Here he has family on the outside and this crowd on the inside. He is turning upside down this family relationship aspect that he wants us to embrace. Within the Jewish world, as Jesus went from town to town, there'd be many people that would say great Jewish phrases. In fact, listen to this Jewish phrase giving praise to Jesus' mother in Luke eleven twenty seven. I think I have it. As he was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. It's a great Jewish phrase. What's Jesus' response to this woman? He said, Actually, rather than blessing her, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And that's what Jesus was saying here. Blessed are those who hear and follow the will of God. So I just have a couple concluding thoughts for us to consider. Number one is this. Realize Christ is your rescue. You don't need to fix or rescue Christ. He actually longs to rescue you. This is really good news. Um, The second thing is this. Recognize Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Be willing to lovingly stand up for truth even in the midst of confrontation, knowing that the same Holy Spirit that was with Jesus is the Holy Spirit that indwells you. If you're a believer, you have this, and regardless of what you face, high or low, you can still find great, great confidence in Christ. And number three is this, repent and take hope in Christ's forgiveness. We saw that verse. So regardless of what you have done or are doing currently, if if there is sin, repent of those things and be restored. We ought to take hope in this and not just hold on to this hope for us, but to share this with others who are uh, facing guilt and shame and just in bondage of sin. Let them know there is great freedom. Uh, the The next one is this, rejoice that in Christ you are brought into this family. So regardless of where you're at today, good, solid family, love that family and pour into the church. Or broken family, know that you can find a church in a local church faith family community. This is good. And then just the last thing is readily follow Christ. As he, as he concludes this, this topic with them, he's just calling them, hey, just seek to do the Father's will. Follow and obey. Listen and do. Hear and do. Listen and obey. That's what what he's calling us to.